Tonebenders, my name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, it's Tim Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, Renee. How you doing? Doing well. We have a very special guest today. Why don't you uh, kick us off? Yeah, if you're a regular listener of Tonebenders, you are the type of person that will already be very familiar with this man's work. He's a member of the Mount Rushmore of sound design. Today, we have Gary Rydstrom. Welcome to the show, Gary. I, now I want to know if I'm Thomas Jefferson or Washington. I don't know which one. I, I guess Walter Murch is, is Washington. I don't know where I am. I, I'm probably Teddy Roosevelt. You're on the mountain for sure. Yeah, exactly. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Gary, you've made the sounds for some of the most iconic films of the last few decades, redefining what dinosaurs sound like, reinventing the sonic chaos of war films, taking sci-fi and robots to previously unheard places. But your latest project has a very different set of challenges. What were your thoughts when you first were made aware that you were going to start working on the new West Side Story? Well, I, to be honest, my first thought was this is going to be a piece of cake for me. Because, <laughs> you know, cause you, you know, no explosions, no guns, no, you know, action scenes. Um, it was harder. I'll just jump ahead. It was harder than, you know, more work than I initially thought because, you know, there's plenty to do in a musical. But I was looking for it. I'd never done the mix for a musical before. So as you say, it's I like going into a genre or a type of film that I haven't done before and um, and sort of seeing how that, that works. There's, there's all sorts of things about musicals that are very specific to them. I thought my job was to you know, set a time and a place, because this is a very much a 1957 New York story. So my job was to set a set the tone for you know, a real place that this took place in. I'm very proud, and I can say that I'm proud because I'm actually from the Midwest, so bragging is against the law in the Midwest, but I, I am proud of how the music works in this. It is a musical, so the music is so spectacularly presented, and I'm a very small part of that. My job is to kind of frame the world that the singers are singing in. And without being too braggy, I, I just think the music in this movie is uh, spectacular. So playing my small part of it was was thrilling i got you know i it was it was great to listen to something so beautiful i saw the film in the theater i'm not necessarily a humongous musical fan i'm not against musicals but it's not the genre i see most often and when they started singing on the fire escapes i actually got chills up my spine i don't know when the last time that happened to me in a movie theater was the music is really it's affecting in a way that uh, i was not expecting well, it's beautiful music to begin with. I mean, the song's beautiful, and that's a, a beautiful romantic song. I remember, here's a little tidbit of, of a memory. It, it, obviously, those moments work because the actor is Ansel Elgort, who does an amazing job in this film. Sometimes people don't realize, but he sings beautifully in that scene. Uh, and, of course, Rachel Zegler, and the, the duet is gorgeous. I remember when we did Ready Player One, did the mix for that, a very, very different film. Behind us, Spielberg was doing his own storyboards for that scene. Because I remember him, on a piece of paper, he would draw up the angles about how to do the fire escape and how to shoot through it and how to bring them together and how to separate them and all that fun film stuff. And he would draw his own storyboards and then take a picture with his iPhone. 
And you know, then when I saw West Side Story, it was so exciting to see. Yeah, he built that scene. You know, while we were doing the explosion gunfire VR movie, he was he was storyboarding this romantic scene. So yeah, everything comes together. And that, that also just for for sound people. A good part of that, not all of that scene, is sung on set. So Ansel Elgort, in particular, sings some of it live. This is an issue with musicals these days. Sometimes it's possible to sing live on the set as opposed to pre-record. And parts of that are one of the moments in the movie that it's sung live. And when you do that, no matter what, the acting, I think, comes through a little bit better. And that's a scene where they're falling in love. They're, you know. So I'm, I'm hoping that's what you reacted to. I'm sure it was. Uh, you mentioned earlier that your job on the film is to kind of set the scene, uh, set the environment for it. The opening shot of the movie is like a, I don't know if it literally is a crane shot, but uh, over the city, over the ruins of all these buildings that have been destroyed. And throughout the entire film, you have in the ambiences this kind of feeling of decay going on. How did you achieve that? Was that something that's uh, Spielberg asked for? Where did that all come from? It was pretty obvious when I, you know, the way he set up the film was very clever. He and Kushner, Tony Kushner, who, who wrote the screenplay, used the reality of the urban renewal of the 50s in New York and the specific area that became Lincoln Center that was being demolished and made that the backdrop for these two gangs, you know, fighting over territory that was essentially being disappeared. So the movie starts with the deconstruction, the demolition uh, feeling to it. And what I liked as a sound person, what I think, and Spielberg never never talked about this, but he's a good filmmaker, and he counted on sound could continue that story off screen. He didn't have to keep showing buildings getting demolished. So after the prologue, there's a long scene with Krupke and, and Lieutenant Schrank, and they talk to the gang members, and you hear the the city being demolished off screen. It's good filmmaking to make use of something you've set up in the beginning and then you can hear later on, just keeps that going without having to show it in a mundane way. Here's a building getting demolished. He's using the soundtrack to tell that part of the story. Was that noted in the screenplay? Yes. Oh, no. Kushner definitely was, was you know, aware of the demolition aspect of this because that was, in his mind, I think that was an undercurrent to the whole and added a tragic element. If you think about it, these people, these, these kids are fighting over territory that they're both losing. So there's, there's a, a depth of tragedy to that. That's great. Did you have to find construction sounds or demolition sounds, I guess, of that period? Or were you able to just kind of go with buildings falling in general? <laughs> well, the, the buildings falling stuff, luckily that sounds the same as it did in the 50s. <laughs> the, yeah. The, uh, it's, it's the motors, you know. The, uh, a lot of what we do sound-wise on, on this kind of movie is find cars and, in this case, construction trucks and cranes that have the kind of the 1950s, less muffled, louder, uh, rougher sound to them. So the cranes and that kind of thing. But um, the uh, buildings getting demolished, that's still a classic sound that will never change. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about, in terms of sound effects and sound design, one of the biggest sequences is the big uh, fight scene near, well, it's not, not exactly the end, but maybe two-thirds of the way through. The sharks and the jets meet in a salt storage shed, and one gang has chains and one gang has pipes. And anybody who's ever had to cut sound effects for chains <laughs> knows it's not a fun thing to do. They suck. They're so hard. 
We had uh, Don Sylvester on once, and he talked about cutting chains and described it as all chains sound like potato chips to him. <laughs> that is, see, now this is, what a great podcast, because that is a detail that every sound person will recognize, because things like chains, you think, this is great, and you get, you know, the way it works in sound, you get this great chain, and you record it, and you get back to your studio and listen to it, and it sounds tinky. Exactly. Literally yeah. tinky. Tinky. It sounds like jewelry. <laughs> like jewelry, if you're doing a movie about women in a, you know, putting on costume jewelry. It doesn't sound right. So here's my trick. Oh, we got a my, trick. <laughs> my trick was there's a, a Sankin makes a 100K mic that records at 100, up to 100K, and that allows you to then slow things yep. down and get them, they sound beefier. So recording chains, even small chains at 100K, and lowering an octave or even more than an octave, then you get kind of the beef back. Otherwise, you get just the tick. So someone should write a book about all the dangerous sounds to try to recreate and record and sound. This change is one of them. Chains and fire and um, you know all sorts of tricky things that sound people will tell you, those are really damn hard. But Don is right. <laughs> if you're having to perform the chains in tempo, though, and then you're having to very speed them down, are you just re are you recording them at double speed and then slowing them down? Well, in this case, the chain sounds themselves weren't... You know, there's so many sounds in this movie that were at tempo that had to be synchronized uh, to action. The chains weren't one of those things. The chains could be a natural. They were, they were part of the fight, but they weren't even the main part of the fight. I mean, the main part of the fight are knives and, and punches. So much of the movie, though, as you point out, is sync-dependent, which is an editorial trick. And if you look at the, what I'm really amazed by in the film, it has nothing to do with me, but the way it was shot, uh, the musical sequences especially, the action fits with the music. Now, if we're, we're still talking about the rumble, the rumble is a scene that in the 61 movie was a choreographed dance scene. In, in this movie, in this version of the story, it's, it's more of a real fight but it's still choreographed, but there's a, there's a rhythm to it. But it's more brutally real than the 61 version, which I like. There's a, uh, you really believe that Tony could kill a guy, that he almost kills Bernardo. You really believe that with this new backstory, that Bernardo is a professional boxer. So, you know, we had to make sure the punches were both natural and big. The knife fight is, is you know, the swishes of the knives were, you know, realistic, but scary. Just, you, you, just, you knew something bad was going to happen. I think that scene, which you point out, is one of my favorite. It's a, it's, it's a great sound moment for us because we got to help tell the story, which was how dangerous this was. I mean, these, the, after that scene, and the story of West Side Story, after that scene, everything is radically different. I'll point out a tricky transition for us was the scene after the rumble is I Feel Pretty. And as I understand it, they, they ordered the, the movie our version of the movie, the scenes are ordered a little bit closer to where the Broadway version of it was versus the 61 movie. I feel pretty in Broadway, as I understand it, came after the intermission. So there was a time to process the death of Bernardo and Riff. And then, you know, second act, you would come in and get this kind of bounce from this great I feel pretty moment. And our trick was, it's a very subtle thing, but for sound people, we had to figure out how to go from the darkness of this death, two deaths, and transition to what is this very perky, I feel pretty scene. And really the only way we, we did it was drop out natural sounds. You don't hear the cops walking in, you don't hear the reality of, of stuff. That all drops out and you just hear church bells. And then we kind of come into the I feel pretty scene. That, that transition turned out to be important emotionally on the sound mix so that you would be kind of left 
you know, to, to feel something about the rumble scene and then kind of gently brought into a very different scene with I Feel Pretty. Can we talk a little bit about that process? When you first come on a project like this, what is your process? Like, how do you approach it from the beginning? Well, you read the script and um, try to get a sense of the tone of it. I mean, this is um, you know, an existing material that you, we all know so well. The practical things, you start collecting things. One of the first things I did was I knew I needed 1957 believable New York sound. So I contacted, luckily I have a lot of friends who do sound in New York um, and happen to have libraries with older recordings. It's amazing for us to think sound-wise. You can't really find good quality sounds in 1957 New York. Not really. You can find old mono recordings, but you can get close. You can get sounds from the 80s or the 70s. You get back into that era. Then one of the first things I did was get subway sounds and old sirens and, and, um, and things that were New York. I just wanted the sound of New York, and I made use of my friends in New York to do that. So you start collecting. Uh, I remember uh, Lou Goldstein, one of the great mixers in New York, had an actual crank siren from the 50s, and he mailed it to me, and we got to operate wow. an old crank siren recorded <laughs> at Skywalker Ranch. Uh, so you collect. You start collecting what's going to be the, the sounds of the movie. The other thing we did, which is, I think, turned out that we didn't need to do it, but all of us on the sound side, Todd Maitland, who was the production recordist, and Andy Nelson and others, we, we put together kind of a, a letter for Spielberg saying, you know, here are the things to, to think about. He was way ahead of us. He obviously already was thinking about them. But, you know, in musicals, one of the things that everyone tried to make right from the beginning was the transition into singing and out of singing so that it felt natural. It's one of the giveaways in musicals and one of the times that people sometimes laugh at musicals. So we wanted to make sure the way it was recorded on the set, the way it was recorded in the same mics were recording the singers in the studio for the pre-records, and so we could seamlessly move between the songs and the production. Um, so, so we did that kind of stuff. We started you know, Todd Maitland getting his gear ready and how things sounded on the production side. I was collecting sound effects, and we were trying to think ahead to do everything possible to make the singing and the music sound as much like they were in the movie as possible. My job in the mix, though, was to help. I got to help be part of that, you know, setting the singing into the location with ambiences and foley and all the all the stuff that we do in sound to make you believe that something's really happening. And you know, most of the singing that you hear is pre-recorded, so those moments need the help of what part I bring to make you believe that they're really on fire escapes or they're really in a gymnasium or they're really you know, walking through the streets of New York uh, and cocky walking through New York. So all that stuff was kind of what I could bring to it. So you mentioned earlier about how you, you, a lot of the sounds were in sync and in rhythm with the music, and uh, I imagine you had to cheat that some with regards to what was happening visually. Uh, can you talk about like how you approached um, musical sync versus uh, versus visual sync? Oh, it was a big part of the job, and you know, really, kudos goes to the way Spielberg shot it because he shot it with that. They all had earwigs and things. And a lot of times, they they could hear pre-recorded score and do action in sync in time with the music. It was beautifully shot. And then Michael Kahn and and Sarah Bouchard, the editors, obviously edited with that in mind too. It was given to us, you know, the opening with the prologue when they're handing around, they're throwing paint cans around. It's all in sync, the throwing and the catching of the paint cans in sync with the uh, the music. But we went a little crazy, and the Steve Bissinger, who was our, our 
lead sound effects editor on the show. We did all of our cutting to sync and listen to the music as we cut. And the very last step, when we were in the final mix, so even after we had pre-mixed sound effects and Foley and done our perfect sync job, Steve, who's a musician himself, did a little micro-sync pass. So he would shift, you know, sync can shift a fair amount and still look right, but he was synchronizing as closely as could everything to fit within the music. So the paint cans, the, you know, the G-Officer Krupke scene with all that kind of slapsticky kind of stuff in the cop station was just micro-synchronized. I've never done anything like this before, but we thought, you know, it's, it's like you want to focus it perfectly. You want all those things to really work with the music. You know how fast the music sometimes is, so that synchronization becomes really important. So uh, in the geeky, geekiest possible way, we went an extra step to synchronize everything we possibly could so it laid into the music as best as possible. I remember as a young editor, like having that epiphany that you could pull something off sync visually to make it hit the music because I was largely self-taught with regards to that. And so I had to figure that out on my own. And I just got a little dogmatic when I was 20 something, <laughs> as you do. And I was sitting there going, it's got to be in sync with the picture. And then when, you know, one of my colleagues who was a musician was like, no, man, hit that thing to the beat and watch it lock in and watch your brain track it appropriately. And it totally works. It was something that I had to get over. This was years ago, but like it was, a, it was a thing that was not obvious to me at the time. I think I tell people just starting in sound that sync, visual sync, sometimes people feel like you have to find, you know, if you were crawling on the frame, you find the exact frame where that impact happens. Even without music, sometimes it's the rhythm of the sound over time, over context, that's more important than absolute sync. Yeah. Sync is for sissies is sometimes things, something people say. <laughs> um, but yeah, sync, in our case, we, we absolutely were uh, beholden to the music. And, and, you know, music changes. That's why we, we did our final pass after the pre-mixing was done and, and the final mix stage, because that's the real music now. Nothing's, that's it. So we can make our final adjustments. So it makes, and you know how it is, how people know it's not, a frame will make a radical amount of difference. A subframe will make a radical amount of difference. Did you find any challenges like with the textures with regards to that? Like, you know, so for like a weapon, you're going to lay, you know, three or four different sounds or more onto, onto a gunshot to make it do a thing. And sometimes you'll spread those out to make the, to make it, you know, just sound more impactful over time. And if you're locking all your transients in sync like that, was that difficult to get the texture that you were looking for? Well, luckily, this movie is not full of a lot of things that are layered sound effects. They're fairly, you know, straightforward. You know, we don't didn't have any equivalent of that kind of stuff. The, the toughest thing reminds me, it's somewhat related, but the, the dancing sound, because there's a complexity to the foley and to the way that they, they move and the, the footsteps and the movement and things like that. And that became, there's a lot of layers to that. And you're right, you start pulling things out to try to make it work with the music. I think that's where your brain was going, which is absolutely right. Sometimes the complexity of those layers hurts the simplicity of what you want to make happen with the music. A lot of my time in the final mix, to tell you the truth, was not that the Foley was uh, you know, a problem, the Foley was brilliant in this movie, but was making it sit with the music so that you got still the sense they were dancing or moving or dresses were swirling and that kind of stuff, but it wasn't so complex that it mushed the moment musically. You're right, that kind of overly layered, overly complex sound synchronizing with music becomes a problem and where it was the biggest issue was Foley. Now, another you know sound geeky tidbit that I'm proud of, and again, I'm proud because it, it, it wasn't my idea, 
Todd Maitland suggested that we do a pass on the set of the dancers dancing without the playback, since they had earpieces, they could hear it. And Spielberg graciously gave him time on the set to do a pass where he recorded in beautiful multi-track audio the sound of the dancing, the actual dancing. We didn't get to use it outside as much, so America doesn't get to use it. But the gymnasium when we did Mambo, um, you know, a little bit of the cool scene on the docks. Uh, some of that is a combination of the actual dancers and the sound they make with our foley. So one of my fears going in was I wanted to honor the choreography because the choreography is brilliant in this movie and the performances are brilliant. You don't want to, for a moment, think they're not really doing that. That, that it sounds like a movie. If that sounds like a movie to me, it takes away from the beauty of the dancing. So it had to sound natural. We did that partially by Todd recording the actual dancers. Yeah, you can't fake what happened on the set. No. You mentioned Steve Bissinger was one of the sound effects editors. He's an old friend of the podcast. We had him on one of our early episodes many years ago. So when I found out that we were going to be interviewing you, I reached out to him to ask him if he had uh, any tips for stuff that we might want to talk about. And he gave me a phone call and he told me a bunch of really interesting things. One of which, and I'm paraphrasing, so you'll understand this and maybe be able to elaborate this better, but that a lot of times the Foley team did the footsteps dead sync of the visual footsteps. But a lot of times the dancers were actually syncing their arm movements or something to the beat and not necessarily their feet. And then once you put it all together, it started kind of falling apart a little bit. Uh, is that something that you had difficult tackling? Or how, how do you even diagnose that? you got to wait for it's all together, and then you balance how much of the, the movement versus the footsteps. Like, the, the mambo scene is one of my favorite sounds in the mambo scene is the dresses. The dresses are swirling. The, the gymnasium scene, to me, is one of two scenes in the movie, cool as the other, where the dancing is like a fight without contact. And the, the, the dancing in Mambo is aggressive as hell. And the, the women are aggressive with their dresses. They're swirling their dresses around. They do the same thing in America. It's really kind of amazing. So that movement was really important to it. But yeah, the sync of that became really tricky. But Steve did make me think of one of the best things that Steve cut in the movie is Cool, which is another scene, which is a fight scene with no contact. But if most of it is just brilliantly choreographed Justin Peck. That's a combination of Foley and Steve being Steve, because he's a meticulous, crazy sound person like all crazy sound people are. He cut a lot of the movement for arms and the twirling. In the final mix, that actually is more prevalent than the feet. And the reason it's more prevalent is because that's the fight that's not really a fight. That's the, that's the arm swish without the punch. That's the, you know, the, the cloth movement and those jerky moves that they do in that in that dance are covered by a combination of Foley doing movement and Steve being kind of nuts to the point he cut every little detail of that. He was responsible for the sync for a lot of the movement in that scene where I think the the sound of the movement of the bodies was the most important element of our soundtrack. He said that what he really enjoyed about this film was that there was a lot of time to be able to play with things and figure out where the sync was. And that he also was trying to use those cloth movements as part of the score, almost like they were uh, brushes on the snare in like a jazz song kind of thing and use the cloth movement to keep the rhythm that way. That's super fun. This is why Steve was so brilliant a choice to, to work on this movie. But it's not only the sync of those sounds, but it's the choice of those sounds. Uh, Steve is great enough that he would record some of his own 
stuff. He recorded a lot. He he did the opening prologue too with the the and and the Jet song and the Jets and walking through the streets of New York. And he he recorded a lot of things uh, for that. So it's not just the sync; it's the quality of the sound. So, so and I knew that he would. He thinks like a musician. And I, I made great use of my grade school piano lessons. But Steve is a real musician, and uh, that's why he did that, and that's why it's his job to do these, the micro-sync through to the end of the, of the film. So speaking of syncing to the music, there's a, another friend of our show named Peter Albrechtson who's uh, over in Denmark. Of course. And uh, I was talking to him and told him that we were going to be talking to you, and he sent me some questions to make sure that oh, we no. asked. Are they in English? <laughs> <laughs> They're not in English, no. But uh, he, he commented about how the surround mix, he found it to be extremely elegant and really utilizing the surrounds and music to do a lot of panning. Uh, how free were you to mess around with the music and play with it, or was it dictated ahead of time? Andy Nelson was the re-recording mixer, did the music, and the, the, the natural space of the music is what the orchestra did. There was no tricky kind of panning things around, but it was recorded mostly in the Manhattan Center, which is a big facility in New York, so it has a, a large sound with the New York Philharmonic and Gustavo Dudamel conducting. The way Sean Murphy recorded it, and making use of Atmos and surrounds. To me, the surrounds and even the, the ceilings and Atmos and all that are really to give you a sense of a theatrical sound, a concert hall sound. And that's what comes across. It, just, it, feel, it envelops you, but in a natural way, not an unnatural way. And Andy does a trick. I'm sure he won't mind me telling you. Know, you have left and right on the main screens, and he uses Atmos to pull them into the theater a little bit. So essentially, he's widening the stereo image. Uh, and it's always, it feel like you're not really doing much, but when you go back and you're making the 7-1 or the 5-1 master from that, you know, I'm always slightly disappointed. It feels just a little smaller. So that's the only, it's not artificial, but it's the only trick is to just pull it a little wider than the screen. And it, it fit the feel of this movie to do that. But the, the, you know, the way the music envelops the space was pretty much the way it was uh, performed and recorded. The other thing that Steve said to me, he's heard you tell stories and then regularly you end the story with, at least that's the way I think about sound design. I don't know if you're aware that you've done that. <laughs> Can you elaborate on that? What, how, do, how would you describe sound design? What's your thoughts on sound design as a whole, as a practice? I only think about it the way I think about it, but I think of sound design as, a, as, as an emotional thing and, and not as a technical thing. And I'm actually not a very technical Many people are more technical than I am in knowing the equipment and the apps and the, and the plugins and all that kind of stuff. I think of sound design as a way to try to generate an emotion. Whenever possible in a scene, even room tones or refrigerator hums, or if it generates an emotion, that's what I'm, I think sound's capability is to do that. And I think that any sound, not just music, can make you feel something. My job as a sound designer is sometimes when I'm making something or mixing something, I'm trying to gauge my own emotional reaction to a scene or a moment. Often it's very subtle, and subtle is good. I think subtle is very good. That and storytelling. And I think I like clarity. And this is sometimes when I, when I say that phrase that Steve quotes me saying, sometimes I think what I'm doing is secretly criticizing other movies because sometimes what bothers me with sound is it feels like it's it's a scattered approach it's got a lot of things happening but i don't know what to listen to 
and then you both lose the clarity of what it is you're listening to and you also lose when I was in film school we learned about how to guide the eye so that Spielberg's a genius at this so you know where the audience is supposed to look I often use that as a guide for what the sound should do because if you know Spielberg's trying to tell me in the audience that's where the point of the scene is right there he does it with staging beautiful staging with the way the actors move and everything else we should do the same we should do something with the sound to make sure that the audience is hearing what you want to hear and focused on what you want them to be focused on is he explicit with you about that is he like hey in this scene like this is the important part over here or does he expect you to kind of figure that out based on what you're looking at he'll be explicit about it if i get it wrong (laughs) (laughs) you know it's constant the whole movie is doing that every every moment in the movie is doing that so you you depend on the movie telling you that and his movies i think one of the strengths of his movies is they're very clear about what they're trying to do and i can take that clarity and i try to emphasize it or do like what we talked about with the demolition sounds there's a story to be told off screen that's another element that we can add that's you know a, a focus of the story that you don't see that and spielberg is clever enough to know that he doesn't have to show everything that he knows the sound will handle later on so anyway my approach to sound design is to always you almost your first step, and you talked about first steps, is to get to know the movie, just to feel the movie and say, this is what the movie's trying to do. And you, you just kind of give yourself over to the movie and say, this is... West Side Story had this interesting combination. It was both naturalistic. It's grittier and more realistic than, say, the 61 movie, which feels a little stagier. So this feels like real 1957 New York, real apartment, Bernardo's apartment feels like a real apartment. But it has a stylization to it as well. So that combination of tone, that's what's interesting to me. And the sound has to follow that tone. So in my case, the tone of the sound was realistic. So real crank sirens and and 50s horns and rough cars and shoes of the era and things like that. But also the thing we talked about with synchronization, kind of the artificiality. You know, when a car breaks in, in sync with the music, that's not reality. That's musical reality. So... I try to find that tone. What's the movie trying to do? In this case, it was a really interesting combination of realistic and unrealistic, and naturalistic and stylistic. You know, what kind of sounds and what kind of approach to sound helps that? Do you have a ritual for your first screening of a film? I always tell myself just to watch the movie and not take notes, and I, 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 I ruin that. every. I have a pad, and I just start... <laughs> You, you should. I, I'm bad that way. I think I would recommend to anyone that the first thing to do if you're going to work on the movie is watch it like an audience and, and, and learn about the movie and not go into the detail. Of, oh, I need to get that sound or that sound. Yeah, because you only get one first impression on, on yeah, the cut. I, I, <laughs> I know I do that wrong, but it's just so anxious to, you know. But yeah, the, the first thing is we, we have a screening. We did it with West Side Story. We had the crew. We actually went, we watched the 61 movie in our stag theater which is a beautiful theater and we had a screening of of the 61 just to get in the mood not to copy it but just to understand that and then we watched um when we got the full r movie we watched it as a crew so maybe that you know watching it as an audience even a small audience maybe that keeps you from writing down the endless notes on a pad it's uh, i do a lot of things different than i should do including take too many notes too early you've got to you got to feel it you got to I, I think, and, and it's also one of Spielberg's strengths, is he's able to be an audience to his own movie. And I think it's one of the secrets to film work is to to think like an audience when the time is right to think like an audience, not just like the guy on the on the other side of the screen doing the details, 
Sometimes you have to forget the details and you go on the other side of the screen and, and feel like you're sitting in an audience and seeing this for the first time. How is that going to work? You know, so that's a trick that I'm still getting better at. But when you're taking notes, what kind of stuff are you writing down? Well, early on, I'm writing simply a list of things we need to get, you know, it's in, or, or, or feelings. I mean, I try to write down what the, what the feelings are. You know, the, the demolition sounds, you know, kind of New York. This, is, this isn't New York, you know, happy horns honking, you know, lively town. This is New York that's falling apart. This is the wrong side of the, of, this is the poor side of New York. You know, the, the apartment buildings have a certain quality to them that's not uptown. It's, it's, a, it's a little down and dirty, so off-screen activities and door closes and babies crying and, that, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I, I tend to write down, you know, feelings, but then also need to get 1958, 56 Chevy, you know, that kind of thing. So <laughs> more boring. And as a supervisor, when you've got your notes and you go to find those sounds, how do you distribute them to your editors or do they find the sounds themselves? How do you go about kind of defining a palette? I like to make the library for the editors. I and mean, people like Steve Bissinger will, is so good at finding his own stuff, so... But we had Terry Acton on this, who's a you know, classic editor, and um, E.J. Holowicki. And my job early on is I put together a library. We use SoundMiner as a database, and I use that to kind of organize into categories for the show. So we both record, collect, find, take from my old library, just, and I collect them into categories. And I write notes about all the sounds. And that's really one of the first things I do. So when an editor starts, I want them to have a library that's really organized for the show, not for a library, but for our show. So categories that are specific to West Side Story. For one thing, I find that in talking about tone, certain kinds of sounds work for certain kinds of tones and certain sounds don't. You know, you kind of, these even door closes, there's a door close that sounds right to me for this movie and door closes that sound wrong. So I like to establish that palette. And then that's what they work from as much as possible. Early on, I tried an approach to sound that was more of a Ben Bird approach. And Ben is Ben. He can only, only Ben can do it this way. But he would make, you know, a moment in Star Wars and make a sound for the, you know, carbon freezing chamber or something. The editor would get one perfect sound. You just cut it in. It was like genius, you know. And um, out of both laziness and the wish to make use of other people's points of view. I came around to doing sound in more kind of elements of, of moments, you know, sort of bits and pieces, and then give it, I, I always thought of it like a toy box. I tell the editors, here's your toy box and, you know, toys that I've selected, but here, put them together somehow and see what you think. And then I always find that great editors, and we had great editors on this show, will do things you don't expect. Um, so that's, that's a lesson that I learned over a couple decades, but that's a good one. How long does that process take for you to do all the initial sound gathering? Oh, weeks, you know, uh, you know, and you just keep going even once the editors start. But the gathering, actually, I do the looking through my existing library first, and you start to pull together a library from existing sounds, try to use sounds maybe in interesting ways, partly because it tells you what you need to get that you don't have, and you start to feel the movie. That's the first thing is putting together a library based for the show based on the library that I know that exists. Sometimes in parallel, other people, very often not me, but other people start collecting and recording sounds that we have on a list, and those things would get gathered into our, into our movie. That, to me, that's a very important step is to 
Um, the library, in some ways, that I put together defines the sound of the movie even before we've cut anything. Do you hand that library to the picture editors as well so that they can start getting used to those sounds? No. The, uh, I mean, the picture editors sometimes will, will, will give sounds if they want to um, you know, put something in as a, as a tent pole or a guide. Uh, the Spielberg editors, Michael Kahn, who I've worked with for many years, their way of working is not as, as guide tracky as some other editors these days who do want fairly full so-called temporary sounds as they cut. Uh, Michael Kahn and Sarah Brochard, who works with them now, are okay kind of putting in some basic sounds, essentially to communicate to us what they're thinking, and then they leave it to us to, to do the... Uh, you know, to do our full sounds. I much prefer that, if I can have an opinion, much prefer that way of doing it for picture editing than the give me a massive library, we're going to cut a massive temporary track, and then we're going to fall in love with it, and you're not going to be able to do much down the road. So I don't like that approach, which is probably most of the approaches that people take these days. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of supervisors will do what you do, which is to collect a bunch of sounds. And then, you know, if they if they get tempitis, it's at least with sounds that they have pre-approved. Yeah. So, but sound is context. Sound you can't. It sound is yes. I can write a book about what people get wrong about sound, including directors. And it's not a piecemeal thing. It's not a buffet. You don't just you know you put these these you choose your sound individually. Every sound is is in context with sounds around it. It's not a, you know, pick it, pick it, pick it, and then by the end you've picked uh, 1,400 sounds and you're done with the movie. It's seeing how things work together in, in a process. You kind of have to find it over time. It's not a, uh, not a, it's not a checklist of, you know, I've, I've seen that approach. Literally, you know, Excel spreadsheet of these are the sounds we need and just get, you know, check them off the list and we're done. That sound might be great by itself, but in context it might be wrong. So I'll write my book someday about everything we do wrong about sound. That's one of them. Can you say more about, about that specific thing, though, about context, about what's the uh, platonic ideal, I guess, of like finding the right context for uh, a given soundtrack, a given part of a soundtrack? There's you know, the masking effect, which is really an interesting thing to kind of work against in sound, which is you know, certain frequencies. If you're playing an ambience that has certain frequencies, you have a sound effect that has same frequencies, it'll get lost. A lot of it is is the context of placing sounds next to each other and within each other so they still make sense and they're clear as to what they are as opposed to mushy. Sometimes sound, when you put them together, you think it should work, but they turn into mush and you don't know, you can't discern what it's supposed to be. It's really about rhythm and pitch. So the sound takes place over time, so you have to clear things up over time. So... I think a lot in terms of, well, both rhythm and pitch. So a high frequency sound that works great as a contrast to a lot of low frequency sounds leading up to it, or a loud sound that works great in contrast to low dynamic sounds leading up to it. And that always changing uh, contrast is important. Um, But yeah, thinking, I mean, I, I think in terms of pitch, I've said many times before that I wish in school I had taken orchestration classes, because I think orchestration is probably one of the great skills to have in doing sound of any type because you think about niches and frequencies and how they work together and how the change of of frequencies and pitch over time affects you if you stay down here and then you suddenly have a you know a a sharp high moment and back to a low frequency moment or Bernstein music does this really well good music does this really well Um, and I think all sound should do should think in those same 
orchestration terms. It's all context. When I was a teenager, I was a drummer in bands. And I was in a drummer in a lot of bands because there's a million guitarists and not enough drummers. <laughs> and uh, I found myself worn out by the drumming. But what I kept going back for was I became the arranger for the bands. Oh. And I'd be like, oh, you know what? We got to let the bass player shine here. And I didn't know it, but when I went to film school that skill that I'd built up in all these high school bands playing pubs and stuff like that was what led me to doing sound for picture because I realized, oh, this is what I want to do, like rearranging and pulling it and figuring out which is which to play where was uh, what really got me going. And I love the idea of the way you just explained it. I'm wondering if maybe you can give us a quick case study of that. Earlier you described in the, uh, the battle scene, the fight scene in the salt shed, that you wanted to get whooshes that were scary and menacing. Well, the scary and menacing whoosh in that one, to me, are the, is the knife fight, which are incredibly high-pitched. I even forget how I made them, but they're really, they're high. I'm sure knives wouldn't really do that, but they're, they're scary. They sound literally sharp, right? So that the knife fight is full of these really high, sharp swishes that, um, arm swishes are deeper, kind of clothy things, and they're, they're in there too, but my favorite is the knife fight. And the knife fight, again, there's no contact, there's, you know, until the death. It's really just, it's just what the scary sound has to be the swish. Yeah, it's just high. And you think about the high frequency, what you then, it's a really basic thing, but you don't have, say, an ambience. If I wanted to have a sodium vapor buzz or something that was a high pitch, it would have hurt the swish of the knife. So you make the ambience sit down low. So the, you know, just like an orchid, you know, guy, arranging for a band, you're, you're, you're having the, the bass sort of support the flute, you know, the violin or whatever it is that you're supporting. So yeah, thinking that way, I wish that I had been a band arranger. That would have helped me a lot. It also seems like frequency and, and, and tempo are tied together in such a way that the faster you go, the more you're not able to use low frequencies. Or, the, or I guess the smaller things become, the faster you go. I work a lot in sports, and my, my sports editors, especially the new guys, they make the mistake of cutting too fast. And if they want a big moment, I, I'm always telling them, hey, man, you got to slow down and set this moment up so we can knock it down. Because otherwise, if you blow through it, it's not going to sound huge. It's got to go slow so I can make it sound big. Yeah, you're right. Deep sounds, low frequency sounds take time. It's for obvious physics reasons. You know, the, the wavelength yeah. is long. So it, it takes longer for it to register. But you know, cutting too fast, if you, Michael Kahn who's been Spielberg's editor for a very long time, you even look at things like Raiders. It is not cut too fast, but it, it's effective. He, he gives it time. Uh, I think in some ways you have, to, you have to be knowledgeable enough when you're a film editor to know that the sound, which you're not, which you're not hearing complete yet, is going to add impact to a moment and let it breathe enough to be able to hear ambiences and music. Um, you know, the effects... And I do think yet another chapter of my book has yet to be written about how people get things wrong is exactly that. If you cut too fast, the sound people just, they curse the picture editor because nothing reads, right? It's just, you have to, what you have to do is you have to, to chop sounds down to artificially short bits. Uh, and a lot of what we do in movies, especially action movies today, a lot of it is so fast both fast and visually complicated all at once, that what you end up doing is an extreme version, if you're doing your job right, of focusing the attention of the audience because the visuals are not focusing your attention. Visuals are kind of confusing you. So I've worked on some movies where it's so confusing visually that I feel like my job is to give the audience a handle 
So, you know, sometimes you ignore a thing that's happening that you would normally cut a sound for because it's no time and there's no reason to focus on. You just find the thing to hold on to. Um, so, yeah, cutting too fast. And you gotta, you have to trust the sound process and the music yes. process is going to do when you cut. It's trust. It, and, you, and, and it's, yeah, you have to trust the whole process and it's, it's got to come from the ground up. That also comes back to, I guess, was it Walter Murch the, who talks about the number of things that you can perceive at one time being three things? Yeah, he talks, he used to, when I went and was in at film school, he came and talked about Apocalypse Now and he cut the picture, but he also cut the sound for, the, for this, that great uh, helicopter attack in Apocalypse Now. And he talked about the rule of threes, so that there was only, and in, in sound, you know, which means you got these three things, and if the helicopter is no longer important, and you, and you you have a fourth thing come in, you drop the helicopter, and then the fourth. It's it's a, and he says it's like the three ring circus. There's a reason for it. It's the three ring circus. It's that's as much as you can. There's no four ring circus. There's no five ring circus. There's the three ring circus. And uh, as as with almost everything Walter says, that's absolutely correct. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Gary. Uh, it's been really great to meet you and uh, speak with you. We really appreciate it. And uh, congratulations on the film. It was, uh, as I said earlier, it gave me chills at one point and it made me cry like a child at the end. Good. So uh, Good. all the emotions, it was a roller coaster for me. Thank you very much. And uh, hopefully we can have you on again one great. day. Great, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you guys. Filmbenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. If you are interested in more pro-audio-related content, stay tuned to hear what other members of the Audio Podcast Alliance are releasing. To learn more and find links to other shows similar to Tonebenders, go to audiopodcast.org.